Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, back after a, a two-week break, uh, which has been nice. Uh, joined today by Ian Smith, company's editor. How are you doing, Ian? Not too bad. John, how was your break? It was very nice, thank you. And you've dressed up for the podcast today. I have, yeah. yeah. Suit and tie. Suit for radio. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, no, it was a very nice break. I went to Turin in Italy, um, which is a funny city. I think it's, uh, as we soon discovered, it's the Birmingham of Italy. It's the home of their car industry. Uh, and also it's Italy's first vegetarian city, believe it or not. But there you go. What a lure. But it was nice. Anyway, also joined by uh, Simon Thompson. How are you doing, Simon? It's great to be here, John. It's great to have you. They see you that much these days. Um, a, a fair bit. A fair bit. <laughs> but I mean, you're certainly busy, but we just don't see you in, in the flesh. So it's very nice to have you here today. Um, we're going to talk uh, largely in this podcast about uh, the AIM 100 feature, part one, which, uh, Ian, you've had the pleasure of, uh, of compiling in my absence. I sure have. Yeah, I, I, I think I booked my holiday very wisely this, <laughs> this year. I, I generally compile that myself. It is a is a pain to compile, especially when you put the companies in the wrong order in the document, Ian. Yeah, it is a pain, uh, <laughs> especially if you get people... To... <laughs> yeah, reversing the order from uh, 51 to 100 to 100 to 51. It's, uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. It's you? not, but all of that pain uh, provides a great uh, feature for the readers. Indeed. Part one this week uh, yeah, is the number 100 down to number 51. And we've taken a slightly different tack in that uh, we've written some longer analyses for some of the stocks. So we picked out some that we write about more regularly that we find more interesting we'll probably talk about some of those today um, and giving them a little bit more space so it's slightly different but the same old aim 100 indeed and it's very useful to have simon in today because obviously the aim uh, market is, is a happy hunting ground for you and uh, many of the companies we've written about this week are, are on your uh, your list uh, several of them are and um, some of the share price performances this year from the aim companies are just absolutely incredible john um so it's, it's a good time to actually discuss it given some of the ratings on some companies mm, absolutely right but before we move on to the aim 100 or 151 let's talk about the uh, the week's big news obviously there has been some extraordinary news this week and we are going to have a general election a snap election has been called yeah 8th of june um so Theresa May, um, Prime Minister, took advantage of a massive lead that the Conservative Party was enjoying in the polls over the main opposition, about 21 points, um, or 18, I think, according to the FT poll of polls. But anyway, a huge lead uh, to call a snap election. She said uh, the reason that she was doing it was that it would support or strengthen the UK in its negotiation uh, regarding our exit from the European Union. She talked about some of the um, disruptive disruptive activities of um, the other parties in her view and she said what they're doing jeopardises the work we must do to prepare for Brexit um, division in Westminster risks our ability to make a success of Brexit so we need a general election and we need one now because so, we have one off chance to get this done and get this so, done right. So not just a power grab uh, taking advantage of Labour's weakness as many have accused her of Yeah I, I think it depends on your perspective. It's clearly opportunistic because she previously had said there won't be an election, it would risk too much instability but some people have said the electoral opportunity was too um, good to pass up um, but another way of arguing this is that well there's a few interpretations. One is that it slightly pushes back or gives her more wiggle room around the timetable of what is negotiated vis-a-vis Brexit in the sense that if we had had an election in 2020 then at that point we would have passed through we would be in the transition period 
likely of our exit from the EU, um, but there would be a huge amount of electoral scrutiny over the deal that she had forged. This gives her a little bit more wiggle room for the negotiation of the longer term trade agreement with the EU before she has to come back to the people. I think that's, that's one interpretation of it. Mm. We're not a political magazine, nor are we a newspaper. So it's not news that we are interested in in its own rights necessarily. Uh, obviously, we are interested in the broader economic themes uh, that are likely to be discussed in the next... Uh, Six weeks. Six weeks. Six weeks, whatever it is. And in, in terms of that impact, obviously we saw a strengthening in the pound, which then had a um, negative impact on the FTSE 100, the dollar earners. Um, so a lot of people are putting interpretations on that. What does that mean? Does that mean the market? Uh, some analysts were saying that they think there's less chance now, given a snap election, of a harder Brexit, in the sense that if um, Theresa May's negotiating um, position is strengthened, then she'll be able to see down the rebels in opposition parties, but also within her own party to the type of Brexit and a deal that she wants to secure. But that is still speculation, but we have seen a strengthening in the pound. Yeah, I mean, one one thing that Theresa May has been criticised for in her approach to Brexit is this phrase, Brexit means Brexit. Um, And actually, I kind of, I actually see sense in that phrase, because I think discussions of soft and hard Brexit are somewhat ludicrous, because we are leaving the single market and the customs union. It's Brexit. That's what it is. So, so I, I don't see. I mean, the the, the movement in the pound. I, I know people are trying to interpret that in various ways, and quite frankly, it's a little bit ridiculous. I actually read a lot of analysts who suggested that this was actually seen as a, perhaps a good time to close out short positions in the pound, and that the pound was actually right now significantly undervalued. I, I think the major point about this, John, is that the pound had been basing out against the dollar and euro for mm. months since last September October time, and it was heavily shorted, record shorts against it. So the move that you saw on um, this week, the 300 pip move and the uh, sterling dollar rate, pretty unprecedented. But that was short covering. Short covering. That's what exactly. it was. Um, so of far more interest is what happens from $1.28 to the pound onwards, um, especially for those investors in FTSE 100 stocks. Because if you actually plot a graph of the FTSE 100 since the day before the June referendum last year against the sterling dollar rates they're inversely correlated. Yeah, and this is something that worries me, something that I've written about before. I mean, over the past six months, uh, in fact, nine months since we, uh, we voted to leave the European Union, there has been uh, a swing towards the dollar earners that make up a lot of the FTSE 100. People have, have looked for those dollar earners as good investments because obviously they're, they're essentially getting more pounds for their, for their dollars earned overseas. Um, and I've, I've been sort of somewhat cautious in, in my suggestions of how people approach this because my view is the pound won't stay weak. And therefore, you have the reverse situation. That's kind of what we're seeing in the moves in the FTSE now. Well, I think also the other thing that you've got to bear in mind is that there's a lot of political risk out there regards the euro as well, with the French elections coming up, German elections, a potential bombshell in Italy as well down the line. And um, it, it may be just the excuse, the announcement of the election, for people to actually get out of positions that they had. Um but equally, it could be the start of something quite major. Mm, like what? Like quite a strong sterling rally. I mean, there is a correlation between when you go on holiday overseas and sterling's very weak. And when I go on holiday overseas and sterling gets... Um, that is very true. I don't think the readers time. are aware of this, but this has happened over the last... Well, it's la- near a decade now, well, isn't last it? last decade. And um, as it happens, I'm actually going on holiday on the 1st of May. 
uh, for three weeks to France. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not my pound buys a few more euros we, over that period. We have talked about sticking my holiday schedules on Bloomberg so that people can actually trade them. <laughs> I, I, I did actually trade your holiday once, I've got to admit, and it did pay for some of my spending money. Oh, you could buy me a pint sometime. <laughs> <laughs> not another one. Okay, right. Anyway, enough. Enough of, uh, of the pound. Um, and uh, I suppose one thing to add to all that is that um, Labour set out their stall. Uh, they're kind of quite an anti-establishment campaign. Uh, I can see you raising your eyebrows at that. I, I, I saw an interview on the Daily Politics today between uh, Andrew Neil and Jack Dromey talking about some of the, uh, some of the what are they called, wealth extractors. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's why I wanted to raise it, apart from just balance having um, uh, repeated some of Theresa May's words. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, in his uh, speech on Wednesday said that if I were a Southern Rail or Philip Green, I'd be worried about a Labour government. If I were Mike Ashley or the CEO of a tax-avoiding multinational corporation, I'd want to see a Tory victory. Why? Because uh, those are the people who are monopolising the wealth that should be shared by each and every one of us in this country. So he's definitely, um, he said also, we will no longer allow those at the top to leech off of those who bust their guts on zero-hour contracts. So Labour in this election very much setting their stall out against some of the excessive profiteering as they see it within business excessive executive remuneration um, which is obviously a big story of the day so that's an interesting backdrop for companies it is a big story of the day it's a story we cover regularly in our no free lunch column written by paul jackson who is a pay expert we have looked at corporate remuneration, management remuneration, and the schemes that determine that and the ways that it can be manipulated. I mean, it's not an easy thing to deal with, but, but I'm not sure it's something that sets Labour apart as, as an issue that needs to be tackled. Because I, I, my view would be that there, there is broad recognition that the disparity between executive pay and, and average levels of pay has become too wide. And I think that's something that Theresa May has talked about as well. Definitely. And we have obviously a green paper at the moment on corporate governance that goes into that. And she's been very critical of pay ratios. I suppose where the rhetoric from the opposition has gone much further, um, Jeremy Corbyn has spoken openly about pay caps, um, especially in the private sector. So that is an interesting you know, difference in tone at least, but the, he has gone further in what he said than Theresa May. And Theresa May has stepped back from what she was saying when she was launching her leadership uh, campaign, a very short leadership campaign, where she talks about putting workers on corporate boards. And actually, then what we've seen from the government in terms of what has been consulted has stepped back from some of that. But like you say, both parties are talking tough on pay, but Labour Party is definitely talking tougher, and some of this rhetoric is quite strong. The, the reality of, of executive pay is that, that it's nothing actually to do with the government. Um, you know, if a company decides to pay its chief executive a significant sum of money, then, then the people that should be most angry about that really are the shareholders. And, and actually, this, this is where the pressure should come from. And this is why we encourage people to vote, if they can, on, uh, on corporate pay deals. Not that many people who, who uh, buy shares always have the ability to vote because of the nominee account structure. Um, but yes, the, the shareholders are the people that should be applying this pressure. And, and I think we are seeing signs that, that that kind of shareholder spring, as we had once before, is, is sort of springing back to life. Definitely this year, yes. I mean, that that is a political position, though, saying that it's purely down to the shareholders. Another position, uh, which seems to be partly the Labour Party or just Mr Corbyn's position, is that 
there could be space for some kind of cap. So who sets that cap? So clearly, that's a political judgment he's making. Whether people or business are going to be happy with that is, an, is another matter. Just, just seems very, very impractical. It's, you know, it's, it's a nice sentiment that I think you know, there's very few ordinary households you know <clears throat> earning ordinary amounts of money would disagree with the practicalities of it are a, ma- a different matter altogether and i think you know theresa may's as you say rowing back from some of the some of the things she raised during her very short leadership campaign are, are indicative of how difficult a problem it is to solve mm-hmm. i think the most important thing i, I take the points votes uh, directors pay quite seriously but in terms of anyone investing in the stock market right now given the government's called an election most pundits would, across the board, agree a landslide conservative victory is what's expected, given the opinion polls indicate such. If at any point over the next six, seven weeks, up to election date, there is any hint that it could be a heck of a lot closer than these polls have suggested, that has got potential to destabilise the stock market. Absolutely. And I, I, I wrote a bit about this in my, my editorial this week. Um, so you have written, Simon, uh, previously in your book, Trading Secrets, your first book. Yes, I did. Yes. Yeah. About the US presidential cycle. Yes, I did. And how there is a very clear pattern of stock market behaviour around that, which is largely because, as, as you point out, US presidential cycles are, are much more regular and, and, and predictable as to when they will happen. UK general elections, the, the, the effect is less pronounced. However, one thing that uh, Stephen Eckert, who writes the Stock Market Almanac, has noticed is, is that a Tory election victory, you generally see shares rise, a Labour victory, shares fall. So, so I can see that what you said, yeah, potential for, uh, for carnage if it does indeed prove to be closer. But, but equally, going back to what I was saying about um, the euro sterling rates and the, euro, uh, the sterling dollar rate as well, a landslide victory for the Conservatives does actually have potential to extend what was a short covering rally to actually something major if people believe that the negotiating position of Britain is going to be so much so more enhanced um, with a substantial majority in the House of Commons. And that's worth bearing in mind if you're actually investing in companies with heavy overseas exposure to their earnings because for the last best part of a year, 18 months, um, lots of these companies, and many that I actually cover, have benefited from very weak sterling. So they've had these currency translation effects, um, and those could actually go into reverse. Yes, that, that's my great concern. Um, we also have an, a seasonal effect to contend with, um, which is the, the May effect. So, so we're going into this period with a bit of uncertainty around the, the trajectory of sterling, let more certainty around the election result, but nevertheless some uncertainty there. could be a tricky time for the markets. I, I think it could be a very tricky time for the markets, John. I, I'm not saying it's going to be a major sell-off, but I, I'm saying that the the easy gains that we've seen since November, since the US election, are probably behind us. And it's going to be more of a stock picker's market from now on if the market's going to struggle to make headway in the face of political um, developments. Absolutely. And I mean, just going back to the US presidential cycle, we're in the first two years of that cycle now, and they're the weak years. So we have that to contend with too. Uh, we do. And also you've got to bear in mind that the bull market that we've seen is just over eight years old. So it's a long runner. It is there, there aren't many longer than this one. And um, also valuations are quite extended as well. Um, so we're going into a seasonal period where historically it's been a bit tricky 
from record highs. Yeah, so as May goes to the polls, sell in May. I wouldn't disagree with that. Actually, I've been top slicing and taking profits on some of the recommendations in recent weeks. Okay, well, that's a very useful segue into the cover feature this week, which is the AIM 100. We'll come back to you, Simon, because uh, as you said, you know, you've covered quite a few of these companies recently. And let's see if you've taken profits on any of the ones that we've written about. I suspect you have. Ian, give us a roundup of, you know, you've looked at the whole lot, you pulled it all together, you've written the intro for us. Any any thoughts? Any big picture thoughts? It was another good year for the AIM 100 in terms of performance. It's the second year running. It outperformed the AIM 100, the 100 largest stocks on the alternative market, outperformed the FTSE AIM All Share uh, and the FTSE All Share. Um, so there is some reliability to be had. Um, but we talk about it being a stock pickers market, and it was quite interesting to look at. Um, if you compare the FTSE All Share to the AIM All Share, a much smaller proportion of AIM constituents were positive, just 56% over a year in positive territory against 76% on the FTSE All Share. And yet the AIM 100 was a lot uh, better performing. But this so is, this is the, the, the AIM All Share being the thousand or so yeah, companies, exactly. like, many of which are very, very small. Exactly. And so the, I suppose the point of that supports why we do this feature, which is actually at the larger end, there's outperformance, uh, but there's also perhaps more reliability. And if you look at the AIM 100, um, 78 of the 100 actually registered share price growth. So it was a lot more um, kind of consistent than kind of the whole of uh, the whole of AIM. So that gives some basis to look at the AIM 100 stocks. Um, and as I say, we kind of went into some of them in more depth. And actually, for a couple of these, and we might reference, and we're going to link to a couple of uh, interviews that we've done with the CEOs of those companies because we, as part of our boardroom talk series. But we thought it might be worth starting talking about Time Out because that's a company, uh, together with Oakley Capital Investments, uh, Simon, that you've written about quite a lot. So it's quite interesting, actually. Um in the States, we've seen lots of price comparison sites and media sites um, achieve massive valuations of multiples of sales. Timeout has transitioned from what was, in effect, a leisure magazine. Um, it was the leisure magazine. It was the leisure magazine. It was the Bible for any, um, any clubber of the mid-90s. But it's had to adapt to the digital age. And uh, I think last year was the first year that its digital revenues actually exceeded its print revenues. And they, they increased by about a third in constant currencies. Um, but the key for Time Out is actually monetizing its massive audience. It's got an audience base over 150 million, I think, over 108 cities, 33 different countries. And if it can actually do that, and it's a big if, then it will actually be valued, I believe, in line with some of the big US companies mm -hmm. like TripAdvisor, Vox, um, Priceline, which trade on multiples of three, four, five, six, seven, eight times sales. Um, how, how does the timeout valuation compare to that? Timeout's got a market capitalization of 177 million. It's raised in a uh, flotation last year 59 million. It's got 47 million cash in the bank left of that. So it's got an enterprise value of 130 million. It's got revenue of 37 million. So it's about three and a half times sales at the moment. It's loss making. It made a cash loss of 10 million pounds last year. Um, Brokers don't expect it to break even until late, late next year at the very, very best. But that could be an inflection point. So we're saying, so Ian, we, we've taken a more cautious approach. We're on a hold. 
Simon, yeah. Simon I, I'm, get, I'm getting the sense that you like the story. I, I, I like the story. There's risk in it, and with risk you've got rewards, and the natural end to timeout is being bought by another player mm. as soon as it hits profitability. I think Cities is also the operative word because the way they're trying to reform the company and as you say having passed that inflection point is being a total guide to City whether it's ticket booking or whether it's going to one of their timeout pop-up markets which bring together restaurants and other kind of pop-up vendors in one place they are trying to bring the city experience to everyday people across their tech platform. And actually, the CEO, Julio Bruno, talked a little bit about their digital revenues in this interview that we did in September. So here's him talking about that now. In, in time of digital, uh, or Todd, we, we have uh, the different revenue streams. Obviously, advertising is still very important. And the print, the magazines that we still produce, obviously, are uh, important part still of, of that revenue. We have obviously the events, we have premium profiles, which is advertising that subscription that we have with the actual uh, restaurants and bars. And then we have e-commerce per se. So we do sell uh, tickets. So if you come to Time Out to find, I don't know, what is the best theater place you can see and uh, you choose several, then we allow you to go and book it. So we sell theater tickets, we sell restaurant reservations through third-party affiliates, we sell our own concerts and our own uh, uh, things like Rising Stars or Silent Discos at the National History Museum here in London. So that part of e-commerce has been growing, and what I've been doing with my team for this year has actually been that. Uh, how do we grow e-commerce? How we do sell things like uh, from hotels to a theater to um, anything else that you can imagine that a person would want to do in a city? Okay, that was Studio Bruno from Time Out. Let's perhaps move on to uh, to another one, Simon, another company uh, in our uh, well, the, 151 that you, uh, you the, got your the, eye on. The logical step is Oakley Capital, which actually... 18% of its net asset value, it's number 51, 52 in the list, I think. 52. 52 in the list. And um, 18% of its net asset value is actually invested in Time Out Group. 20% of its net asset value is cash. Um, but the, the key thing about um, Oakley Capital is that over the last decade, its net asset value per share has increased by 10% compound annual growth rates. Despite that... The shares are trading on a 33% discount net asset value, even though NAV increased by 16% last year. 20% of net asset value is cash in the bank. It's been exiting some of its investments, its longer-held investments, at thumping internal rates of return that any private equity group would be interested in or proud of. And to just give another kick to the story, the managing partner has been buying heavily the shares around about the current share price. He bought £2.5 million worth in the final quarter last year. He's bought another half a million pounds in the first quarter this year. Um, it's my buy list. Skin in the game. We always like to see that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Uh, they sound like shrewd investors, so that would kind of support the time-out view that you've, uh, you've just gone through. But they are, and one of the reasons it's been languishing at this massive discount is the lack of dividends. Well, they've addressed that. They've just paid out a four and a half pence a share dividend, dividend yield 3%, and have committed to actually um, paying out a dividend in the future. So you get the income plus the growth potential, plus, as you said, you've got skin in the game from a major investor who's a shrewd cookie. Absolutely. Actually, just looking down at the, uh, the chart that we, we put at the end of this little sort of mini supplement, Dividends are, are, are an increasing feature of, uh, of companies on the, uh, certainly at the larger end of the A market. I mean, you've got companies here, 
yielding sort of four or five percent. I mean, this, this is a growth market. We, you know, this is not the kind of thing we expect, and it's not it's not the kind of story that's out there. But but you know, aim and income is becoming an increasingly important story. I think that's completely true. I think the greater reliability of the companies that we're seeing now, shareholders are pushing them uh, for income um, in addition to capital growth. So as companies stick around in the top 100, um, you're getting more of that pressure from investors to pass some of that cash back. Mm. Uh, and actually, one of those companies which we discussed earlier is Telford Homes, the East London house builder. And the interesting thing about this company is that it's been de-risking its pipeline. There's been a lot of commentary in the press about the London housing markets. This company targets properties with an average sale price just north of half a million pounds. So actually at the low end of the London housing market. Um, but what it's been doing is been selling off some of its developments to institutional investors on a build-to-rent basis. And these investors will, in effect, pay for the whole development. So Telford Homes will not be taking on debt. It recoups its investment in land. And it's guaranteed, in effect, at the end of the day, when it actually completes the development of a bump of profit. And it's done four deals in the past 12 months on this basis. And I understand from the chief executive that they're looking to do even more. Um, that company's trading on roughly 11 times earnings for the year just ended, 31st of March 2017. Shares offer a dividend yield of 4%, which is fairly okay for a house builder. Absolutely. And as I said, it's, the, the debt profile has improved markedly. It's not heavily geared, but it's improved markedly looking out 2018, 2019, 2020, given these forward sales of these developments. And what they're benefiting from as well is that the institutional investors, previously big investors in commercial property, are getting more comfortable with residential property via these kind of agreements. So they're tapping into a change in um, investor sentiment among kind of pension funds and other institutions. Well, I would suggest also that they're tapping into a change in political sentiment as well. Um, obviously, <clears throat> the housing market is is a political hot potato we had a housing review not too long ago which which left some people uh, rather cold but build to rent actually providing more quality uh, affordable homes to rent not necessarily to buy is, is seen as a key plank in solving the housing crisis and and, and it seems to me telford are in a sweet spot here don't you think some of the rating though reflects the risk um they are very exposed i mean i see their towers in east london near where i live they're very exposed to the london residential market and given the potential for political upheaval that we mentioned earlier, do you see this as a risky investment? It's, it's actually far riskier now than it was back in August last year. I, I put the readers into the stock at 289 um, when it was in a single-digit P ratio. This was after the EU referendum and all the house builders had slumped badly, including Telford. I had run profits at about 369 a few weeks back, and it's still be inclined to run profits on it. And as I said, you know, the, the yield is good. The debt levels are okay, it's, it's not stretched, and you've got the forward pipeline of sales already in the bank, and the CEO is out to actually do even more. Um, so all I can see going forward is de-risking this investment for shareholders. Um, so perhaps the rating can be extended a bit more. In any case, if it actually delivers on the pipeline that it's got, um, EPS is going to explode over the next two or three years. I mean, this is a stock where EPS could go from 35 to 50 over the next four years. And so a potential yeah. earnings upgrade story, we always like a nice earnings upgrade story. Yeah, yeah. Okay, where should we go next, Ian? Perhaps a Buff Not Banking Group. That's one that Simon is also well-versed in. That's at number 89. 
Arbuthnot is interesting. It's um, it's got a stake in Secure Trust Bank. Um, it was a fifty two percent shareholder. Actually, sold down that stake last year. Returned a cash to shareholders. I, I know it well because it was one of my bargain shares a couple of years ago, and uh, people have done well out of it. Uh, what makes it interesting now is that it's using this cash in order to build up its commercial banking arm. It's been buying. Uh, a few bolt-on deals, including the uh, private bank, Duncan Laurie, uh, £45 million. Um, it's bought a couple of leasing companies as well. Um, it's now looking to expand in commercial lending also, which is into the kind of secure trust territory, actually. It is. And uh, again, what's interesting for Abathness is that it's got a billion-pound deposit base and its lending is about £700, £750 million pounds at the moment. So it's got masses of liquidity to actually go out and lend that that amount. And if you, if you take the view that interest rates, um, three-, five-year, seven-year fixed interest rates, uh, retail deposits are going to stay low, and I, I do, then there's an opportunity to, for Abathness to raise, continuously raise money from retail depositors and recycle it into commercial lending and given it's covered its fixed overhead base then profits will ramp up pretty pretty quickly which is why Hardman Company is one of the companies that actually research firms that follows this they believe that earnings per share can actually treble this year to 50 pence and increase again to 85 pence in 2018 yes that puts it on a high Earnings multiple, about 17 next year's earnings forecast, uh, but it's still trading below book value. And my contention is it should actually be trading at or above book value if it can actually deliver that type of earnings growth and return on capital. It's an interesting one to look back at because a couple of years ago we were talking about the valuation anomaly at Arbuthnot where its market valuation was actually lower than the stake that it held in Secure Trust and we were trying to work out why that was the case. Um, And then a lot of things were put forward but i think what's happened since then has demonstrated that not only can it get good value for its shareholders out of secure trust but also that the underlying private banking business had good potential for growth too do you think this is one that investors just have got wrong in terms of the valuation over the years i I think part of the problem is that the chairman of our bathnet banking owns roughly 55 percent of the equity which reduces the liquidity in the shares so its market cap is a few hundred million pounds so it might not appeal to some investors on that basis. Um, that. That's skin in the game. That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of skin in the that, game. That's massive skin in the game. And the fact that it's actually paid out since I commenced coverage over 300 pence worth of dividends on a stock that's roughly £15 pounds now tells you a lot that the interests of the board and the interests of outside shareholders are actually aligned. Which is exactly what we want to see. Exactly. Um I mean, you talked about the risks to Telford, uh, and, and one presumes they are largely economic risks. Economic risks to, to challenger banks like Arbuthnot, or do, you, do they concern you? Um, economic downturn is the biggest risk to any banking um, group, and which actually comes back to the election. Um, one of the reasons why I think Theresa May actually called the election now, rather than waiting to 2020, is that who knows in 2020 the economy could not be in such a good state as it is now. The UK economy is in a really sweet spot. Um, and the UK economy has done so much better than all the smart people at the Bank of England and other economic bodies were actually predicting last summer, post-Brexit, that I have little reason to believe 
that companies like Arbuthnet Banking over the next few years won't do well. But yes, you, you've got to be wary of economic downturns. But, but Especially you, given the credit cycle. I, I suppose the worry would be that they are a growing a commercial lending business right at the end of the credit cycle. That's the worry, isn't it? They're putting a lot of investment into that. They're buying loan books at a time where other banks, I mean, including Secure Trust, are getting out of some areas of lending that they think, um, and now the risks aren't, uh, the rewards aren't justifying the risks, so they're getting out of unsecured personal lending. So is that the worry with Arbuthnot then, that they're expanding just at the time where things might be about to get wobbly? Um I'd say less so for Arbuthnot. When I look at the major high street banks, and for example, my, my bank sent an email yesterday, not that I want it, but an unsecured loan for a ridiculous sum of money at a lending rate of less than 3%. And you just think, what is the commercial return on that to justify the risk that you're taking? Well, Arbuthnot doesn't do that type of lending. Um, and Secure Trust Bank, its lending rates on its unsecured loans and its car loans is much, much higher. Than it's, got, it's got a strict criteria for the, the yields it wants. So as long as Arbuthnet Bank can actually keep to what it said it's going to do in terms of its return on capital and the yields it's actually going to be looking at, it'll have to turn away business because some business won't meet that criteria. Um but as long as long as the economy stays strong, I see no reason why Arbuthnet Banking can't grow strongly and hit those forecasts over the next couple of years. Okay. Yeah, and its private bank gives it that distribution channel, we were talking about this earlier, to be able to do that, um, more the commercial lending. So if it has a you know owner managed business who also private banks with Arbuthnot, um and then wants to take in some lending for the business, that is a natural extension of what they currently do um and like you say that is you know a world away from um personal unsecured lending i I personally much prefer to invest in a company like this than any of the high street banks at this point in the cycle okay all right where next perhaps a quick shout out for central asian metals which is at number 75 a copper miner his main operations are in kazakhstan we talked about dividend payers and uh, they have a seven percent yield their benefit for investors is that their cash costs at their main operations are incredibly low so basically the company generates a huge amount of cash and pays out a large amount of that cash they've been very reliable but actually the challenge they have as a business is expanding that operations or looking for other uses for that cash other than uh, paying dividends and i think the argument goes that if they were to take on operations elsewhere, it would be tough to replicate that same kind of cost. So, I think, so their cash costs um, were just 43 uh, cents compared to 227 cents of average realised price for what they're mining. So what that shows is that they are generating a huge amount of profit on this mine. Were they to expand, it could be quite dilutive to their earnings. So actually their executive chairman, Nick Clark, talked to us last year about the challenge of, for the company of finding other uses for its cash than paying out dividends. Here he is explaining that last September. Some of our investors say, well, if you do something outside, how is it ever going to be quite as profitable right. as what you do currently? And that's a good good question. But it doesn't stop us looking. And I, we started looking for other business opportunities about two years ago. And we've looked at a lot of projects mm-hmm. and a lot of companies, well over 100. And we've probably engaged on eight to 10 uh, companies over the years. And for one reason or another, either they don't fit the environment, 
that they operate in or their costs are not quite uh, compatible with where we would want to be, we haven't acted. Now, a lot of our shareholders have, have said to us, look, you don't feel you are pressured to do something because uh, there is an old model that says a mining company that gets the money goes off to look at doing something else mm. on the back of one success and the second one is a failure and drags down the first one. Well, we're not going to do that. Right. You know, as I reach my middle middle 60s, I want to be remembered for the successes I've driven rather than any failures. And it doesn't mean to say that we are ultra cautious, but when we move, it'll be in the best interest of the company, but also the shareholders as well. So they don't have their dividend that they currently enjoy diminished by something that uh, would detract from the value we've currently d- developed. Okay, moving on from uh, Central Asia Metals, let's, uh, let's, we've got to have one more, Simon. So uh, take your pick of the uh, 50. Uh, another one that catches my eye, and um, I, I think investors should have a look at, um, but not necessarily to buy it, is Chris Lambert. It's an activist um, investor, and it's actually the company that bought a sizable stake in Hurricane Energy, which is the go-go stock of AIM. This year and the end of last year, the share price has rocketed about three, four hundred percent since Alex Newman actually put the readers into it very shrewdly um, at the bottom. But 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 anyway, the, the shares are trading roughly in line with net asset value. I put the readers into this company about two years ago in my bargain shares portfolio, and it's done really well. The reason I say you should have a look at it is that every month this company produces its monthly net asset value. And on that list of companies, you will see some pinging up that you haven't seen before where it's actually built a stake. It's an activist investment company. So when it passes the 3% threshold, it'll actually declare that stake. But if you actually look at its list of top holdings, sometimes you'll see some of those where it's got less than 3%. And I've actually followed this on and off for the last five or six years. And I've actually picked out companies from their list that they're following that have done very well for readers so Crystal Amber is well worth a look. Okay. And actually, I noticed in the, uh, the little write-up here, they mentioned uh, Granger, which is a company they have a uh, holding in. Granger goes back to the residential property thing we were talking about. Yeah, they have uh, their build-to-rent operations themselves. I think they partnered with a Dutch pension fund they partnered with um, to build their yeah, on, on a quite a major scheme. And, and also, the other thing about Granger is that they sold out their non-core operations so they had a German book of residential property and they got a really good price for that Um, last year they had a new chief executive so new management Um, they pay a decent yield shares are still trading at a discount to NAV which is in effect why Chris Lambert holding the shares Okay, excellent Aim. I mean, I think it unfairly gets uh, a bad reputation sometimes but you know I just looked through this list of the uh, well the hundreds of 51 and there are some extraordinary companies on here um some newly floated companies that have done extremely well uh, i'm drawn to jewel um jules jewel however you pronounce it i'm not, not posh enough <laughs> um but it's a, it's a fantastic company the growth story is you know it's 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 uh, it's solid um shares are uh, well ahead of their ipo price it's one that harriet likes Although not not enough to uh, to be a buyer at the moment, presumably the shares are fairly punchily valued. Yeah, it's very expensive, and they've done particularly well at a time where everyone is prophesying the death of the high street. Um, they're managing their transition to online very well. The e-commerce um, sales have grown quite strongly, so they're showing that if you are selling the right things, people still want to buy them, and if you are good at doing that online as well, 
that's the way to navigate the current retail. But it's about the audience, isn't it? It's about the customer base. Yeah. So you might be selling the right things, but to the right customers. And if you if you have a customer base as a retailer that is in some way insulated from from any pressure on wages or whatever it might be, then then you're in a good position. Yeah. And they've also got a wholesale division that is growing quite strongly as well. So they've got the tri- the triple effect there. Having said that, Burberry this week had a bit of a shocker. Not in the A100. Well, that's a in rele- the FTSE 100. In the FTSE 100, and that's um, relevant to the discussion we were having about currency. Uh, the, the, the concern there being that they have had big benefit from the rise in the value of their translated value of their dollar sales. Um, how long will that last? They've also had some speaking of wholesale issues in the US. Um, regarding their retail clients wanting to discount their goods and they've pushed back against that because they don't want their goods to be put on the put in the bargain bucket um, so there's a couple of things there that suggest that maybe that um, story isn't quite as strong as it was perhaps a year ago yeah it could be the canary in the mine they, they were certainly one of the companies that benefited most quickly from the currency moving in the opposite direction so uh, one to watch as well I would suggest as a kind of leading indicator perhaps of what we can expect from the, uh, the moves in the dollar and what, on the effects on the FTSE 100 Anyway, thank you, Simon, for uh, your insights there. Plenty more to read every week in your column. Um, or you're going holiday for a bit, aren't you, shortly? Um, there the will be next week, John. Next week we have a column and then you're away for, for three weeks. For three weeks after that. So uh, get the most of it while you can. OK, plenty more in the magazine this week. The AIM 100 is a huge feature, so that tends to dominate the section there. But we've looked at uh, life assurers in the sector of focus. Uh, Algae is looking uh, at high-yield, low-risk shares. And in fact, Algae will be talking at this evening's event uh, that we're running here at the IC, at the IC um, which is all about income. Um, lots in the personal finance and fun section. Not many results. Tesco, again, not great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah people Tesco. are disappointed this Booker thing is going to drag and drag. I, I, I mean, Let's quickly talk about that because I really don't see why people think this is such a bad deal. I really like this deal. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> uh, but it, it was it interesting. It was interesting to see, given there was evidence of the recovery strategy coming through in the results, that the shares went down as, as much as they did on the day. Um, and some people were attributing that to management saying that this kind of book a deal would be completed not until or they might not get regulatory sign off until the end of this year or possibly into the beginning of next year um, and obviously they have had some uh, vocal investors that are critical they think it's distracting from the company's recovery strategy but there are other people on the other side of the argument that say it's a good it's a good deal in terms of what it says about the future helping them um, get more uh, control over their own supply chain grow their grow their market share or you know add to their massive market well, share it, it and diver- retail with uh, you know it diversifies them into uh, into the kind of the trade you know into the to wholesale markets and, and the uh, food service markets but I think it's fantastic but they it's so good that it's almost too good in terms of if you look at what competition regulators might say about this deal and the impact that it will have on those um, on the whole kind of wholesale market. So that's yeah. But te- technically, yeah, Tesco doesn't actually operate there right now. So uh, yeah, well, know, so then it's, it's another example of vertical integration. But it will it'll be interesting to see what they say if they turn around and nix it. Then um, will it have been a costly uh, distraction for Tesco? I'm not sure. Got to try. That's the chief execs. That's where they earn their stupidly big bucks. And that's why I, I, that is actually what I like about it in the sense that it's a vision for where grocery is going to be. And Sainsbury's have a very different vision uh, right now um, in terms of buying home retail and trying to be a multi-channel um, retailer of not just food but everything else. Um, so kind of countering Amazon in that way. And Tesco's m- made a different play, and it'll be very interesting to see which one's more successful. I, I like it. This is what this is what management should do. This is this is what their job is. This you know to try and 
build a company that can cope with whatever the future has to throw it. And Tesco and Sainsbury's are taking different routes, but but that's this is well, what are they expected to do? Just sit there and and and, and let Aldi and Lidl eat their market share. I mean, it's, it's it's all good for the trade in terms of our trade. Yes, absolutely. Gives us plenty to write about. Anyway, thank you, Simon, and thank you, Ian. Um, Pick up the magazine uh, in all good news agents. Uh, for band 90, the AIM 100. Our views on the AIM 100 part one, 151. There'll be a second part next week where we look at the top uh, the top 50 with some real big names in there, some real high-quality companies. And yeah, get, or get online and, uh, and subscribe. Um, and we'll be back again next week. Thank you very much for listening.